all multifamily models, if you're doing the value add or yield co-play as an example, all they really are, and this is again a very simplistic view of looking at it, is you take the T12 and you're essentially doing cash flow modeling on top. Very simple cash flow modeling. This isn't some exceptionally complicated strategy if you think about it. So I try to do it my way, but everybody does it in their own way. And there are people who are much more successful than me who I might not think their model is that good. But hey, success in and of itself is a good um, you know, indication of your abilities, right? Uh, but what I'm doing primarily is running a lot of my own models. I also teach, I've also been teaching modeling for the past eight to 10 years. Welcome to Investing in the US, an Aussie's Guide to US Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, as always, Reed Goosens. Thank you so much for dropping by today to join us on this incredible day. It is a Saturday, we are recording and it's 2018, and in 2018, I hope you, all of you guys are going to go out and start taking massive amounts of action. And the reason that you tune into this show is to learn from my incredible guests, and hopefully those guests will inspire you to go out and take action, get off the fence, and make it happen in 2018. As you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. If you do like this show, you know, you know how to give back. It's pretty easy. It's pretty simple. It's pretty quick just jump on iTunes and give the show a review. It's, it shows iTunes that we're giving you some incredible amount of content and value. Uh, it takes two minutes of your time, so please help us out by doing that. You can also follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching uh, at Reed Goosens, and you can listen to this show wherever you podcast. We're not just on iTunes, we're on SoundCloud, we're on Stitcher, and we're on Google Play. And you can also find these shows up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com. Click on the video link and you can see the recordings of these shows each and every week. You can see my ugly mug, but you can see the beautiful faces of my guests. I'm really excited to have on the show today a, a friend of mine. He's also a student. His name is Omar Khan, and I'm very excited to have him on the show. We're going to talk uh, and a lot about his background in institutional financial underwriting. But enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Omar. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Not too bad, man. How are you? And thank you for the great introduction. <laughs> well, I haven't even got into the good part yet. I want to do introduce you to the guests and maybe just give a quick snapshot of your background. But you are a CFA charter holder. You've been that for over 10 years investing across real estate and commodities. You've advised on over $3.7 billion, that's with a B, of uh, capital financing and M&A transactions. You've syndicated large multifamily deals across the United States. You've advised high net worth advisors and entrepreneurs on real estate portfolio allocations. And to top it all off, which is what I love most about you, you're a global citizen. You've lived in Dubai, Toronto, Calgary, and now you call Dallas home. So pretty incredible stuff, mate. And before we dive into the nuts and bolts, I do want to talk a little bit more about your background. So do you want to rewind the clock a little bit and take us all the way back to when you made your first ever dollar? <laughs> well, it's kind of a funny thing how I made my first dollar is I was an awful keyboard player in school. I, I thought I was good, but I was really awful. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one day I just kind of advertised on one of the Usenet boards back in the day. This is like primitive internet days, right? <laughs> Where you had to go on forums to advertise yourself locally. And somebody was looking, I was advertising my so-called skills. And somebody was looking for a music feature, but a cheap music feature. That's what their ad said. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm 12, I can be pretty cheap, you know? Right. And because I knew my skills were crap. So I knew I could be pretty cheap. So, and that's how I started making my first dollar. Wow. So what, what specifically were you teaching? You said keyboard, right? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So you, how, how are your skills on the, uh, the synthesizer then, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I used to think I was good till I actually discovered real music and I just kind of gave up. <laughs> well, mate, walk me now through your journey uh, into what you've done. You've, you've obviously been uh, highly involved in the capital markets and commodities and advising people across the world. $3.7 billion. So you want to talk about your education and walk us through what you've been doing since you started teaching keyboards back when you were 12. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to say it was planned, but to be honest with you, none of it was planned, like all good things in life. 
I went to the University of Toronto. I graduated and I just started working with RBC. It's a global asset manager in Canada. I'm Canadian. And, you know, one thing led to another. I got a couple of really nice opportunities. Then that was in Toronto. Then one of my ex-bosses, he poached me over to the oil patch in 2012. And because there was a couple of really good opportunities, it was on the upswing. And we just started doing a lot of M&A, capital financing, that sort of work. And that led into my next gig, which was uh, equity research, uh, sell-side equity research, valuation, all of that kind of stuff. And concurrently, I'd done my CFA. And that, that, you know, one thing feeds into another, right? When you open one door, three more doors open up. Right. And you work and you never really plan things and they happen. So that's how it really happened. And then about two years ago when I got married, my wife was, uh, is a physician in the U.S. And uh, we were debating back and forth whether she should come to Canada, I should go to the U.S. And then we just flipped a coin and we decided that I should come to the U.S. And I said, if I'm coming to the U.S., I'm going to Texas. There is no other place I want to go to. Hmm. And that's how I ended up in Dallas. Wow. Wow. So you, we've got, you've got a pretty awesome background, but you said in the introduction, I mentioned that you, were, you lived in Dubai. Uh, it was, yeah. that, was that the quote unquote oil patch that you went over to, you know, be, be, be um, to, you know, your ex-boss to, <laughs> poached you over to the oil patch? No, that wasn't that. Uh, first of all, what had happened is my dad graduated from Berkeley in the 70s. So around the time when he was kind of running his own business and stuff, uh, he was basically the defense, he was a defense contractor as well as he was responsible for managing, he's a business partner with G, managing their gas turbines business mm-hmm. in the UAE. And around that time, the UAE was picking up steam in the, in the mid 80s, early 90s, really trying to revitalize itself. And that's how I was there. I, we've got a lot, ton of friends there. So I go back and forth every couple of years to meet people or they come here something along those lines. Right, interesting. And for all those people out there who don't know what a CFA is, uh, what's the acronym stand for? It's a Chartered Financial Analyst, Mm -hmm. and it's basically the gold standard in finance if you're in wealth management, valuations, that sort of work. Okay. And for all those other people out there who may not know what M&A transactions are, what are are they? Well, they're basically mergers and acquisitions. So a lot of times when companies are either buying or either merging with other companies, they're either acquiring assets, or even if they're dispo- dis- disposing of assets, how do they value, uh, they have a share deal, like how do they value the shares? Do they want to give a premium? Do you want to give a discount? How are you basically going to acquire something or merge with a company to go achieve the things that you want to achieve? Right. And a lot of that is, uh, it can get a very technical financial work because it's, it has to be backed by a lot of legal and a lot of that kind of stuff. So it's very interesting work, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but no, because that's the whole point I've got you on the show today is to talk about you know your institutional level financial analysis, and it, as you said, the CFA, the A in the the CFA stands for analysis, uh, analyst, I should say. Um, but what what has guided you towards real estate investing per se, and not stick with what you currently do uh, in the capital markets? Well, there was a couple of reasons, Reid. Um, I mean, personally, for, from our family's background, what I'd observed that over three or four generations, uh, you know, as part of our wider family portfolio, we had shares or we're running a business or something like that. But uh, commercial real estate that we own, some retail centers, a lot of industrial warehouses and stuff, remarkably, over the past 50 years or so, they had held up their value. And not only they'd held up their value, in fact, the values were only going in one direction. Uh, long-term wise, obviously, we're not looking at short-term dips. And I started, you know, when I was doing the CFA, it's a lot of that is portfolio management. You know, how do you look at the total amount of assets you have and how do you allocate them out? And when I was looking at that uh, and I was talking to my father, some of our business friends, uh, it kept coming back to the same issue that even though commercial real estate wasn't like a core holding of the family's portfolio because they had been business and stuff, but it had transitioned into becoming such a nice, sweet section of the portfolio where it was doing everything and didn't require a lot of uh, effort from our side, just because uh, luckily for us, we had acquired at the right time, at the right price. And it was, I mean, it was just a really solid asset to have. And when we combined it with the rest of our portfolio, uh, the correlation, I mean, these are technical things, but you know, the correlation between assets is very low or not at all. So even though you're, stocks and bonds in your portfolio might be going down you have stability with the real estate aspect so overall your portfolio isn't as volatile so you're not i mean you know when there's not a lot of volatility 
you are less prone to making uh, stupid decisions, you know, in the case of market down. <laughs> well, what you're really talking about is having a diversified portfolio, right? And, oh, yeah. And, that's, and having the aspect of commercial real estate is what I'm think I'm, I think you're getting at is that it, was, it provided a backbone to stability in any portfolio. Oh, yeah. is, that, is that right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. If it had done, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I've talked in quite in detail about just how people analyze deals. You know, you, you mentioned just before buying right. It's so important to, to buy an asset correctly because you can royally screw up and you can still make money, right? So, it all, yeah. you, you make money when you buy, not when you sell. So, exactly. how when we're getting in tighter markets here in the United States with commercial real estate, how are you seeing the way in which people are underwriting deals? And, you know, we'll get into how that attracts more type of investors, but just from a high level point of view, are you seeing people being a little bit, you know, the models that you're seeing, you've probably seen a lot of financial models in your time. What do you, do you like to see when you see a financial model and what does it show about a sponsor if the model isn't as complex as what it maybe you, you would have thought it being given it's a multi-million dollar deal that they're acquiring? That's a good question. And I'll just give you some background. What sure. happened is when we moved to Dallas. I mean, we I'd done the math on this thing and I realized, uh, you know, my wife works about 60, 80 hours a week. I work 60, 80 hours a week. Uh, we really cherish the free time that we do have. So we didn't want to buy assets and buy ourselves a separate job mm -hmm. as an example. So immediately for us, at least given our portfolio and our preferences, single family houses weren't really I mean, that wasn't a good deal for us as an example. Now, I know a lot of people had made money that way. It just wasn't a good fit with our needs. And I'd already seen the commercial end of things, so I was more attracted towards there. So I started attending a lot of RIAs, a lot of meetup groups, and just, just generally, you know, conferences and stuff. And what I very quickly realized was that even though, I mean, I had a lot of valuation experience, but my operational experience, you know, the day-to-day -day management of a property wasn't that good. I kept coming across people in meetup groups and RIAs and networking events where a sponsor would be trying to market and raise, say, three or four or five million dollars. And if you'd express an interest and be like, okay, that's really good. Because in finance, what even on, say, sales and equity research, our buy side clients would say, hey, why don't you send me over your model? Let me input my own things. Let me have a look and then get back to you whether you want to take your advice or not. So when I tell that to a couple of the sponsors, or some of the local gurus here, at least, which I was told were very respectable gurus, they'd send me a model and I would be shocked because a junior or sophomore, a sophomore in like say any top 20 school could make a better model, really, <laughs> with no absolute, with no prior knowledge of the real estate market. Right. It was actually very shocking. You know, there's uh, just simple errors, you know, things are not summing up properly, things are not basic arithmetic errors. And then, uh, if you somebody layers in an assumption, say on revenue growth or expense growth, it's just not backed by any sort of data. It's backed by their personal opinion of what's going to happen. And you look, that's really nice. And it's kind of worked out because a rising tide has lifted all boats in the past three to five years. Mm -hmm. But even then in a market like Dallas, there's lots of sponsors whose deals have gone south just because they didn't underwrite properly. They didn't underwrite professionally. And then their investors, they really ask them the right questions. Because they just, it became more of a marketing exercise as opposed to an actual exercise of, hey, should we actually go acquire this asset or not? Is it a good deal? It became a question of, I want to acquire this asset and I'm going to stretch the numbers and massage the numbers to just, you know, ram a square peg through a round hole. Right. No, it's, it's really interesting that you say that, ramming a square peg through a round hole. Because I've also noticed the same sort of thing, you know, particularly in, you know, as a sponsor myself, you know, when you're going and approaching very uh, sophisticated investors, you'd want to sh try and show them a sophisticated model, right? And and having, I've seen some models out there myself and I'm thinking, wow, this is it? This is what you're going to raise $5 million on? I thought, geez, that's, you know, it, it, as you said, it's basic, basic you know, a, a, a sophomore could, could do a more complex model. Now, there's also the argument to say that, you know, keep it simple, stupid, right? And, and you know, you don't want to overcomplicate stuff to make it just so cumbersome for the investor to understand that you uh, lose them in the complexity. Uh, but I think there's a fine, there has to be a happy medium. You have to, you know, as you said, back up your assumptions with what, you know, with actual data, um, but also have a complex model in order, personally, this is my personal opinion, to then attract higher and better capital as you move forward when you're operating an investment company. Would, would you agree with that, those sort of statements? 
look, I would agree with you. I think simplicity is better than complexity, but you, I mean, no amount of simplicity is going to cover for basic arithmetic problems. <laughs> right. You know, you can make things simple, but if you can't add two things together, it doesn't really matter. Right, 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 right. No, I think I completely agree. So talk to me now about how you like to, you know, do professional underwriting with your models to attract your type of investors, because I think that's the crux of it, right? Uh, and what are the steps that you like to see in a, in a model to give you, and you talk about basic, basic arithmetic, but let's go one step further and let's talk about the complexity part of it. What do you like to see in your models in order to feel comfortable if a sponsor has presented something with you to think, okay, this person knows what he's doing. Yeah, we may differ on some assumptions, but in hindsight, we, he knows what he's doing. He's financially apt to, to take down a $10 million or $20 million deal. Well, some of the, that's a good question. So some of the things that I'm looking for right off the top is, for instance, your basic assumptions around revenue, uh, operational expenses, and your, the debt that you layer on. A, they have to be backed either by historical numbers or some other data set that is credible and not just made up by you in your basement, mm-hmm. essentially. <laughs> you know, I mean, it has some sort of validity, right? You can't just say, here's my data set. There is no uh, auditing on this data set. It's not backed by actual numbers. It's backed by my opinion. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but they're not entitled to facts. Right. Right. So what I'm looking for, essentially, I mean, even with great operators like yourself, is a lot of the assumptions you put in are coming from the industry databases, like say RIA, REIS, mm-hmm. Reese, is that how you say it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Yardi, CoStar, Axiometrics. So there is some sort of intellectual rigor behind that thing. Right. Then, for instance, you can layer on your own assumptions on top of that. So you might say that, yes, for instance, uh, we feel that the vacancy rates, as an example, in this market have historically been, say, 8%. But the way we're positioning this thing, we can reasonably expect to get 7% vacancy rates because the type of product that we're bringing to the market, that has exhibited, say, between 7 and 7.5% vacancy. And we've got a better marketing team and all of that kind of stuff. So those are very good operational assumptions to make. But you still have to start at a base level. Mm -hmm. Right? And if you don't start there, I mean, if you just... I mean, look, if you have a shaky foundation to begin with, you can't build a, you can't build a house on a shaky foundation. Right, 100%. It's, it's, that, sort of, it's that sort of a deal. Yep. I can, but we can get into the mechanics of how to build a model. Yeah, 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 no, I, and I think we should because I think that's the whole point of what today's conversation will be on about is, is, is that. But I think you, you raised some great points with the basic assumptions on operating expenses, um, revenue growth, uh, stuff like vacancy, where and asking the questions of the sponsors, where are you getting this data from? And can they back it up with any hard facts, as you said, not just, oh, I'm just going to pull out a thin air because I think I know what it, you know, I know what it is. Now there is, um, and, and there's a lot of newbie um, syndicators out there trying to, you know, show their hand. And when you start diving into the weeds, you can start to see uh, the wheels can can start coming off, <laughs> if that makes sense, oh, yeah. uh, in in their underwriting model. So. What other things, you talk about operating expenses, revenue growth, vacancies, what's the next thing you start looking for in, in a model to make sure that, you know, validate that, they, that the operator knows what they're doing? So this sounds really simple, and this is something I learned from one of my mentors. Uh, Reed, it's very, it sounds bad, but it's very easy to figure out how professional somebody is with the way they presented their information. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was something that, I mean, I'd learned but obviously that's something that when I now see, for instance, it's very basic stuff. I mean, you don't even need to know finance, you know, you have to be formatting stuff correctly. You have to be consistent in your formatting and presentation. Your, your things have to print out the right way. You have to have, you have to match the right type of expense in the right type of category. As an example, uh, you don't have to write complex formulas, but you need to write the right formula. You might say one person might do it in two lines and you might do it in five lines, Mm -hmm. but as long as you're getting to the right answer, that's what matters, right? You can't take shortcuts where you just kind of skip step two, three, and four and just go to five. Right. Right. So those are some of the things. So a lot of this is around presentation and then backing up your data with not just historical data, but market specific data. So in the case of insurance, you go talk to an insurance broker and get a quote. If you're talking to your lender, you actually have some sort of quotes and not something that, you know, my friend did a deal three months ago and these are the terms he or she got. Right, right, right. I mean, because there's so many factors that go into these kind of things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what do you look for from a risk point of view, uh, like entry cap rates, exit cap rates, 
assumptions on loans, loan to value, all that sort of stuff. What do you? What are the sort of the risky half a dozen items that you like to see that you would you would think that can cause risk in a financial model? So apart from formatting, consistent uh, formulas, consistent formatting, just in terms of uh, setting up the things, having everything laid out in a very easy to read format. One of the things I've observed, and I mean, I'm actually a victim to this as well. You, 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 know, you learn and you move on mm-hmm, and you learn mm-hmm. and you move on. It's an evolutionary process. Is that um, I, I just, this is a personal pet peeve of mine, that people try to put everything on one massive page. So if you're trying to say, this is very simple stuff, but you know, we are, we're all prone to doing these kind of things, right? right? You put everything on one massive page. So for instance, if you have to audit any of your stuff, so if you have to audit any errors, if you have to audit any logical, logic errors that you made or logic steps that you take, if you have to audit formulas, the presentation, you have to scroll a thousand rows above or a thousand rows down or like 20 rows, 20 columns this way or 20 columns that way. And eventually what starts happening is that eventually you start making mistakes mm-hmm. because this is natural. Everybody will do it, right? So what I like to do is uh, what they call modular financial modeling. So for instance, your revenues as an example. So let's assume you have assumptions, you have inputs, calculations, and outputs. These should be three separate tabs as an example for worksheets right? Then within your inputs, as an example, you have, say, your revenue inputs, and you have your expense inputs, and you have your financing inputs, and you have your other operational inputs. Try to separate them out, because eventually what starts happening is that when you're in a live deal, as an example, and the terms might change slightly, or you have to change the price, you don't have time to go and do all of these things then. You have to already have your A game on. You have to have your team ready. I mean, you guys do the same thing. Your team is ready. Your business plan is ready. You know which submarket you're targeting, what kind of product you're getting, what kind of lending you're going to get, mm-hmm. what kind of investor you're targeting. And if you don't have all of those things, you can't put an asset under contract and then start doing these things. Right. Right. Because you'll be behind the eight ball, as an example. Yep. Right. Completely. So yeah. So it's just setting up the right foundations and putting them in modules. So think of these as separate modules that you just add on to things. So if you have a separate financing area, right, where you have financing assumptions one way, you have financing calculations in another tab, and the financing output in a separate tab. So then you can see a logical flow of information from one area to another. Right. If you put all of these on a massive page, uh, best of luck. That's not, I mean, it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. you know. So just to recap there, inputs, outputs, separating your different assumptions into different uh, dashboards or whatever you might want to call it, but where you can clearly walk yourself through or walk when you look at a model okay that's his purchase price this is his you know assumption on eggs uh, cap rates or whatever this is his assumption on financing this is the person's assumption on operating expenses and so you, you know it's methodically laid out so you as the person who's you know reviewing and which cool essentially it's a peer review right of the person's model um, you'll, you, you can go from A to B to C and it's not going, as you said, to F. <laughs> there's, there's, you've got to keep the steps in between because as you, if you do have errors uh, or you need to go back and tweak something during, you find something out during due diligence that you know, financing assumptions might have changed or something, you can tweak, tweak those models uh, or those inputs and then that will have a uh, flow-through effect to the, um, to the outputs, which I think are really, really important. Um, so in terms of institutional financing 101, understanding the mindset of sophisticated capital, what do you mean by that when you want to understand the mindset of sophisticated capital? So, yeah, so that's a good question. And let me give you some background before, for instance, I, when I started initially doing it, I was talking to a lot of people and luckily I ran into you guys as well. Uh, you know, a lot of people that I talked to, they would say that, Hey, and I, I agree with this thing. I'm not completely dissing this thing cause I do it as well. They said, you know, well, if I just get five investors of 50,000 each, that's a quarter of a million dollars. So if I'm co-syndicating a deal with somebody, I've kind of made my share of what I committed to do. Right. And I started doing the math on that. I mean, it's not complex math. It's just simple math. And I said, look, if I want to raise a million dollars, that means I've got to at least have 20 investors. So let's assume I'm the greatest salesman on the planet, which I'm not. <laughs> you know, but let's assume I am the greatest salesperson on the planet, right? I'm assuming that on average, I'd have to talk between five and seven people for one person to convert, as an example. Now, my numbers might improve over a period of time, but let's keep that as a baseline, right? That means if I need to get 20 people, I'd have to talk to anywhere between 100 and 140 people at the minimum for 20 to convert. So right off the top, I can tell you with a three-month-old son, 
with the job that keeps me busy six to eight hours a week, plus some of the other you know businesses I have running on the side and other commitments. I mean, I, there's no way I could talk to 150 people a month. Right. Right? That's just not going to happen. Right. Right. Concurrently, I was talking to a friend of mine, and they're raising about $100 million for a private equity fund um, internationally. And we'd been going back and forth, and I was thinking, like, dude, you know, I need to start hitting some institutions, but maybe I need to start small. You know, you have these little arguments or points, debates. And he just kept pushing me. He says, look, man, with your background, because we'd work together. He's like, look, man, with your background you have to start hitting up like bigger, deeper pools of capital as an example. Right. But what these deeper pools of capital want is for you to do all of your homework beforehand. So what you can't be doing is sitting in a meeting and somebody even asks you a curveball. Most times, you know, sometimes it happens, but most times you can't be, you can't be, uh, um, you can't do that mm-hmm. because the conversation's over. They're just going to walk out of the room and you're going to be the only person sitting in the boardroom. Right. It's literally going to be over. People do that. So you need to be so well prepared. You need to know what product you're dealing with, what market you're in, what lending facilities you have, what operators you have, about yourself even, because it's a very introspective sort of you know, right. process. So that's how I started hitting up a lot of, say, wealth managers. And, a lot of, and these are wealth managers with at least a 100 million plus book of business, right? Uh, over there, there's some technical issues that I won't get into, like broker, dealer, custodian, ODA related issues. But when you start talking to these people, you have to understand that they're coming from a very different mindset than a guy who's investing 50 or $100,000. Right. What they want to know is not just how much return I will get, because you know a lot of people focus on the return. They also want to understand what, what is my risk mitigation strategy, or how do I minimize my risk? If I add this to my portfolio, uh, how do my risk metrics, how does my sharp ratio look? How does my portfolio look on a going forward basis? Is it less volatile? Is it more volatile? Do I already have a lot of exposure to a certain area? So for instance, if they have clients and they've already invested, say, in REITs that, let's assume, specialize in commercial real commercial multifamily real estate in Texas, well, they're probably not going to talk to you as much because they already have a product that is more liquid, mm-hmm. that is exposing them to the same area and same submarket. So you have to know all of these things before. So when you're sitting down and they say, well, this is my ideal portfolio, this is my client life, you can have a very structured argument. You can have a structured conversation and those structured conversations, they're not going to ask you a question. Well, what happens if I want to take my money out in six months? Right. They're never going to ask you that question because we already know the nature of the businesses that this is an illiquid asset. Hence, you get a liquidity premium, mm-hmm. right? Hence mm-hmm. the higher IRRs and mm-hmm. all that. So a lot of questions that your quote unquote retail investors will ask you, these guys won't. Yep. But you need to, for the lack of a better term, you need to have your shit together. <laughs> no, you can swear on this show, it's fine. But I think that you, you touch on so many good points there that dealing with sort of your, and I want to talk about like the mom and pop investors versus your institutional capital and how you as an operator, um, one, as you just, we talked about, you know, presentation, um, basic assumptions, the, the, the flow from A to B to C in your financial model. But then you've just hit on some great stuff in terms of how you're speaking to your investors because the type of questions that are uh, someone with $50,000 will ask will be so much different to a complex uh, institutional level um, person. And you have to be ready to answer those questions, right? So give me an example of what a institutional level investor may ask you uh, when you're approaching them to look at that, you know, that deep pool of capital. So as an example, I'll just give you an example of the recent actually I met somebody on Wednesday and they're a wealth advisor and they want to bring. So a lot of the deals that uh, you know we're kind of doing, they're called private placements, mm-hmm. for instance, in wealth manager parlance or terminology. And wealth managers, for instance, even if they want to do private placements, they have some compliance and technical issues when their broker dealers at the back end won't allow them to do certain work because it's under the other business activity section. And it's really hard for them to justify it. There's so much paperwork that most wealth managers, for instance, just won't do it because it's just so hard for them, right? So one of the questions that the guy asked me, it was like, look, how do I talk to my broker dealer and custodian at the back end? And what do I have to do? Now, this isn't really, if you think about it, this isn't really an investment-based question. Right. Compliance-based question or like a, what levers do I have to pull at the back end for me to bring this on? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So uh, we worked with the guy and we told him, look, you might have to take your, change your broker dealer. Or, for instance, we could bring you in-house and we can work out an arrangement where you introduce us to your clients. And we can work out an arrangement where the 
all the assets that the clients bring to us as an example in the form of investments, they stay on your books. Because one of the big things that wealth managers kind of don't tell you, but that's the thing at the back of their head, is that if they give, if they quote unquote give you an investor, well, that 50, 100, 200,000 is off their book. So they can't charge any asset management fees on mm -hmm. that. So for instance, if a guy writes me, you know, through his investors, like a $2 million check, well, that's $2 million, 1% of that 2 million, which is $20,000, I think roughly. Yep. That is the amount of asset management fee the guy is not going to make every year on these people. Right. So there has to be some incentive mechanism for these people. Why would they do it? And the thing that I had going was, I said, look, I understand you have these issues. So before you even say it, let me tell you, you have these issues, <laughs> whether you realize it or you don't, number one. So I understand why you're hesitant. With your compliance issues, there are, look, there are just one or two brokers who will allow you to do private placements. Again, this requires you to do your homework beforehand, mm -hmm. right? And these are the things you have to do, for instance, XYZ. These are the three companies that are boutique companies that are within, say, the 100 to $300 million assets under management sort of mark. That's the book these guys are running, and they're already doing it. And the reason why they're successful is XYZ, because now you start talking about margin compression in the wealth management industry and how they have to branch out and start doing estate planning, tax strategy, all that kind of work. So when you give them a broad based picture and already address all of their questions from beforehand, even if the wealth manager, for instance, or an advisor isn't going to give you that book of business in the first say, meeting or three or four meetings, within a six months to a 12, year, 12 month period, they are going to find a way to give you business mm -hmm. because they are in the business of making relationships. Right. Right. So they will find a way. But you have to present yourself as a credible and capable source. Which would go back to the questions of your underwriting and, and making yeah. sure that, it's, it, as you talked about, you know, the, the, the laying it out in a, in a clear format, professional format, formatting is correct, spellings, punctuation, all that sort of stuff, and your model also looks not just like you've written on the like a, a high school student has done it <laughs> in a basic you know, year 12 mathematics course. And combining those two together to then talk about, you know, deeper questions like compliance and all that sort of stuff, which is very deep. Um, yeah. But it's also very good to, you know, as you, as you, I think the biggest thing I just took away from what you just said is the, um, when you're, when you say the word or someone asks you a question and you say, uh, or you're, you're hesitant, you don't know the answer straight away. It, it, it also, it automatically shows them that there's a weakness there. Correct. Exactly. And then that is something that they, either can accept or they, they're going to say, sorry, we don't have time for that. You need to be, oh, yeah. or you need to be on your game. Um, well, they're not going to accept you. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. So what, what, what are you sort of um, doing in terms of your, you know, financial underwriting today that helps you make sure that you're, are you building out your own multifamily model that you uh, are using other people's or examples that you've seen to really, um, you know, build out a sexy model that's, you know, kick ass and all that sort of stuff? Or, or have you got stuff that you've already built out in the past that you just sort of tweak a little bit to make it multifamily US based? Well, as you know, a bit of both actually. And uh, let me tell you this, the reason is all multifamily models, if you're doing the value add or Gilles play as an example, all they really are, and this is again, a very simplistic view of looking at it is you take the T12 and you're essentially doing cash flow modeling on top. Very simple cash flow modeling. This isn't some an exceptionally complicated strategy if you think about it. So I try to do it my way, but everybody does it in their own way. And there are people who are much more successful than me, who I might not think their model is that good, but hey, success in and of itself is a good uh, you know, indication of your abilities, right? Uh, but what I'm doing primarily is running a lot of my own models. I also teach, I've also been teaching modeling for the past eight to 10 years, right out of school. And the reason for that was, uh, again, this is just a finance uh, thing, that I hate using the mouse. So anytime we'd have a new analyst who's, you know, who's, because we use Excel day in and day out, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Who's using the mouse for very simple stuff. You just cringe, man. Like people, <laughs> one of you, like, dude, like, come on, just use a keyboard, right? Because as soon as you start using the keyboard, things just go so much faster. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. there's a little curve, right, where it takes you a little longer to do work. But once you get over that hump, you are like a Lamborghini. You're going bam, 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 bam. Right. So that's what I do. So I, I run a lot of my own models. I teach a lot of modeling as well. And a lot of this is just common sense and best practices, man. This isn't trying to recreate the view. Right. Right. And I think that's really important with the, the, because the, I've looked at so many complex models in my time and how at the end of the day, it's trying to be a crystal ball. 
right? That's, that's what it is. It's trying to be a crystal ball. It's not a crystal ball. No one has a crystal ball. If we had a crystal ball, we'd be sitting in the room. It's a projection. It's a pro forma. Um, so people have got to remember that in the back of their minds. You can only do so much. Investing is risky, inherently risky, right? How you reduce that risk in your model is up to you as the syndicator and then the person who you're trying to sell it to, uh, to invest in the deal. They need to also understand those risks, take those risks on board and say, okay, I see how he's walked from A, B, C, D. I see the assumptions. I understand where the assumptions are backed up from. I will then make an informed decision to say, oh, yes, I will invest or no, you're, risk, you're, you're too risky with your assumptions. I'm not going to invest because you're, you're quote unquote, uh, 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 <laughs> I forgot, you quote unquote projection forward uh, your your crystal ball is wrong, right? And 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 it's too risky for my appetite or for my you know deep pocketed uh, you know investors who only want four or five percent. You're sort of having a you know returns of twenty five percent, like twenty five percent to me just screams risky. Like what's going on with this deal? It's too good to be true. And typically, if you see a model that's too good to be true with some fantastic returns, you really need to dive deeper. And I, and I think. In my mind, you need to dig deeper uh, in those types of models because you need to understand where they're getting these great numbers from. Uh, because if uh, the higher the, the return, in my mind, means that the higher potential risk that there could be behind the numbers that are supporting it. And I don't—that's my opinion, but I don't know how you feel on that. Look, I agree with you. And to give you an example, uh, when I was uh, quote unquote interviewing sponsors, mm -hmm. uh, just for our investment purposes, also. I talked to a few guys and they were telling me consistently that their IRRs across their entire portfolios were in the early to mid thirties. And I <laughs> honestly, look I'm, I'm, look, I'm sure there's one person on the planet who can do this. Yeah. I just don't know that person. But I was like, look, man, Warren Buffett, the greatest investor of pretty much all time, or at least recorded history, man, his IRR his annual gain over a 35 year period isn't even 30%. So unless you somehow happen to have, nobody knows about you, but you've beaten Warren Buffett year in, year out, well, I might not be the smartest person in the room, but I can assure you, you're not smarter than Warren Buffett. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, ha I had this mentor one time, a financial guy uh, at an old firm I used to work at, and he said to me, anytime you see an IRR with the three in front of it, it's lying. <laughs> <laughs> There's, in, when it comes to real estate, uh, if you get... 30 plus percent IRRs, they're lying to you. Even even mid to high 20s, they're lying. So it's it's something that um, uh, it's just not, it's not, <laughs> to me. Look, I'm sure, look, I'm sure there's one project that sure. got 30 points. Sure. I'm not, hasn't happened. But what I'm saying is if you're doing 10, 20, 40 projects, just the laws of the average state. And this isn't, again, this is just very basic common sense. Laws of the average state, you're not going to be doing 30%. It's just not going to happen. Right, right. And the thing is, with uh, as an underwriter, and my philosophy is, for, for, for first and foremost, is under-promise and over-deliver, right? Exactly. You have to under-promise. Under if you know that your assumptions are a little bit too conservative, but they still pencil, great. <laughs> you know, it's only going to help you as a, as a syndicator moving forward. So, and you're only going to be able to get, you know, attract more and more capital uh, as you grow out your business. Um, so, so yeah, nobody's sorry. Just, I just yeah. wanted to add to that. Nobody's going to complain about getting more money. <laughs> right. It's right. And, yeah. and, and, and it goes back to your, your assumptions. I had a client the other day who wanted me to show them uh, what, what does the, what does the deal look like that I'm, I'm raising money for with a supplemental loan on it? Because that's part of the business plan. We, we want to go and execute on a supplemental. Uh, and I just turned around to them and I said, look, I'm not comfortable with, with putting that type of information out there because in the past I've been burnt. I put that information out there. We haven't achieved it uh, for whatever reason. Markets change, you know, over time. And if I just don't underwrite it to the beginning, which I don't do anyway, why it's part of the business plan that we would go and try and get a supplemental loan. I don't then want to go and advertise that we, this is what it's going to look like when there's so many variables. I may not hit a 40% you know, re refinance on your money. I may only hit 25%. How does that look? The interest rates may change. Again, I'm not having a crystal ball. And they struggled with that, with that sort of sentiment. And I said, look, you may not be an investor that needs to be investing in this deal if you're only thinking about what the returns are going to look post-supplemental. I've underwritten, you know, and, and they, they disgruntledly, oh, you know, they understood at the end of the day. But it's from personal experience that I'm just like, again, under-promise and over-deliver. And if I'm, if I'm projecting on something where there is no supplemental currently projected, 
and we, we you know we, we got a 65% loan to value or loan to cost. I'm happy and the, the numbers still, the still pencil. I'm happy with that. And as, and as, and at the end of the day, me as a syndicator need to be, I need to be able to sleep at night and I need to make sure that I'm not putting undue risk on my investors or in my, in my model to make me feel uneasy. And you know, there was another quote of one of my investors, uh, sorry, one of my mentors said that the person who sweats the most is a person who's underwriting the deal. If they are, <laughs> if they, if their model is, rubbish or you know a little bit like like <laughs> they will they will inevitably sweat and, and when you start pushing the numbers or pushing the the assumptions they start to sweat really hard and that's how you can really as a litmus test look to see if you're, you're working with a good sponsor or not uh, any comments on that <laughs> yeah look first of all i do feel that as an underwriter just you know we should take away the business end of things just ethically speaking right, right? you're taking money even if it's a dollar it's not, it doesn't have to be big amounts of money you know, you just you just kind of have a responsibility to somebody, right? If I take a dollar from you, and with the express, I'm not I'm not just taking it to go buy ice cream. I'm taking it to go invest it, and I tell you, look, this is the plan. I have an ethical responsibility towards you to be conservative, to not to treat your money like I would treat. Hopefully, to treat your money like I would treat my money, and I treat my money as a precious commodity because I've worked very hard for it, right? And we all work very hard for our money. So it pays to sort of, you know, because a lot of people, for instance, if they're going to be very liberal, they're going to be one and done, mm -hmm. or they're going to do two deals and they're out of the game. Right. But I mean, guys like you, you've been doing this. I mean, look, Reed, you've been doing this for six, eight years, and now you're at a level after so many years of consistent hard work and just day in and day out of grinding it out, man, that you're doing $20 million deals. You're doing $40 million deals. But this didn't happen in six months. No, no, it didn't. And, and, and it didn't happen through being loose with your underwriting <laughs> right it had like i was on a on a our deal we closed on at the end of last year we underwrote 70 deals to get to that point now there's a whole other slew of issues with you know broker relationships and all that sort of stuff but i was being conservative and and when we are in a in a, in a tight market as we are right now my advice to people who who are listening to this particular episode is that you have to be conservative with your underwriting. You know, uh, it's been over 10 years. It's, it's, it's 10 years since the financial crisis. Everyone's expecting, you know, some softening to happen in the market. So your assumptions need to reflect that. Uh, and if it doesn't pencil, it doesn't pencil. You know, and don't, don't lose sleep over the fact that you're not getting more deals done and other people are getting deals done because, you're conserv because your underwriting's conservative. Maybe their underwriting's really loose uh, and, they're, 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 you know, they're projecting these high 18, 19, 20% IRRs to their investors but their underwriting is absolutely rubbish and it's backed by just, you know, you know, paper, you know, <laughs> toilet paper and you, you could pierce holes through it, uh, you know, with, with a pencil. Uh, so my advice to people is to, you know, don't always look over the shoulder at other people and know that in tight markets that we are in right now, like Dallas, Fort Worth and San Antonio and all the, all the rest is be conservative with your underwriting. And it may take you underwriting 60 to hundred deals before you find a good one. Right. <laughs> Oh yeah, and, and the good thing is, if you do six or hundred deals, hopefully your models improve as well. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, mate, look, I have really enjoyed this episode today. I always like to end the show with asking my guests with the top five investing tips. But before I do get into that, what is your number one piece of advice for all those wannabe syndicators out there who are sitting in front of their model right now to become more educated with modeling in per se, because that's really where it starts is with the modeling uh, and not just rely on a spreadsheet. Oh, the numbers turn green. I had one, <laughs> sidetrack, I had one lady come up to me one time, she was using a model and she said, the numbers turn green, so I think it's a good deal. I just scratched, I thought, oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, you can't be basing your, you know, your, your financial future on whether uh, an Excel model has the macro in it to change numbers to green. <laughs> but what is what is the biggest piece of advice for those people listening to this episode today about you know getting better with their underwriting and becoming more institutional with their their, their underwriting? Well, I think it starts just with common sense, Reed. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, we're all prone to making mistakes. People, I mean, I've been doing this for ten years. Guys have been doing it for thirty years. Some guys have been doing it for fifty years. Everybody makes mistakes. Okay. But it's not how many times you go down, it's how many times you get up, number one. And hopefully you've learned from your mistakes, so number one. Learn, being, um, having a combination of humility and self-awareness mm -hmm. in order to understand, hey, I had a great model, but reality didn't turn out the way that I thought it was, going back and actually looking at your decision-making and where you kind of took a, where you did the right things and where you did the wrong things, right? And 
look at both sides of the coin. Another thing that I really think is very important for people is to educate themselves. And I don't mean just say, so Google is great, YouTube is great. But there's a reason, for instance, uh, you know, a guy working in Goldman Sachs, it, I'm, I'm not talking personality-wise, I'm talking skills-wise. There's a reason why, say, the analyst class going to Goldman Sachs is probably, on average, a brighter caliber of student that goes to your local retail bank. I mean, that's just the way things are. Now, that's harsh, but look, I mean, that's reality, right? And a lot of people, it's like, say, any sport in the world, right? Look, life's unfair. It's unfair that I don't have the athletic ability that LeBron James does. It sucks. But, you know, I have to do something else. I have to play a different game. So if I'm not really good at, say, the modeling aspect of things, but I'm really good at the sales and marketing aspect of things, I should give myself enough knowledge to learn the modeling and underwriting, you know, at least have some idea of what's going on, and then partner with the right people, obviously the right people. So you have to go, you have to kiss a few frogs before you find the right frog, right? So you par partner with the right person where they can bring that aspect of the game in, but, and you can bring the aspect where you're really good at. So because I think everybody should focus on their skills. I have some friends, Reed, who are phenomenal salespeople, okay? Like they can sell ice to Eskimos, mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. But honestly, if you ask them to open up Excel, it's like it just goes over their heads. Right. Right. But they're way more successful than I am. So, I mean, <laughs> it mean yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean they're stupid. It actually means they're smarter, but they've used their strengths in the right direction. Yep. Okay, cool. So that's, what I that's, that's great. Love it. Um, I always like to end the show with you giving me your top five investing tips. Ready to get into it? Yeah, I think I am. Perfect. <laughs> what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Well, one is goal writing. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of been doing that. And the other is a combination of visualizing, okay. uh, visualization, breathing exercises. Yep. I was doing visualizations ever since I was a kid. I read a really cool story and that's how it kind of got started. So those are the, it's not one habit, but there's a common. So you, you, do you do meditation at all? Is it like a form of meditation with the, with the visualization and the breathing? I try to do that. I want to be more regular. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a three and a half, three, three and a half month old kid now. So I'm a little shaky on that front, <laughs> but I try doing that as much as I like, because I think it gives you some clarity yep. and it gives you self Yep, yep. What is the most influential tool in your real estate business? I think there's, well, there's, there's three tools, I'd say. I think uh, one is the ability to pick up a book and actually teach myself. Right. You know, that, I, th I think a book would be the tool, but the ability to do that. And then Excel in my iPhone. Because <laughs> they both kind of go hand in hand. If I have a great model and I want to send it to you, I really can a lot of times if I'm writing, I can't send it to you if I don't have my Apple. 100%, 100%. Who has been the most influential person in your career to date? Uh, okay, so there's two people, I think. Again, I, I keep asking me one and I keep answering two or three. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yeah, so I think one would obviously be my father and what I learned from my father, he was in finance as well. Uh, what I learned from him was, um, as a kid, I mean, I, I realized this now, I didn't realize this when I was a kid, was that it's better to have your uh, investing perimeters and understand what you're trying to invest in. And it's better to let a few deals go than to jump on the first deals, but it's better to just channel in on a niche, focus on that, and try to dig as deep a hole as you can in that niche. Yep. You know, as opposed to doing everything for everybody all the time. And I think uh, the second uh, big mentor or inspiration that I've looked up to was my boss, Leo, in the oil and gas company where I was doing M&A for. He was the coolest boss one can possibly have. He was very empowering. I think he didn't even realize it. He was that sort of a guy. He was very empowering. Uh, he gave you a lot of confidence, even if you were down. And this is why a lot of his people, I'm not even kidding, you would take a bullet for the guy. Right. Interesting. Wow, that's incredible. And I think those, having those parameters from your dad is, is really important. You know, um, in setting up your investing parameters, what you just said, really, really important to making sure that you are laser focused with what you're trying to acquire and, and having, it's okay. Like, you know, in the cricketing terms, letting a few go through to the keeper, uh, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> so no, I completely agree. Uh, mate, what's been the biggest failure in your career to date and what did you learn from that failure? I think the biggest failure by far in my career so far, there've been a lot of failures, actually. I'm a product of my failures. I think, I think the biggest failure so far has been not, I mean, I'm a very aggressive guy by nature, mm -hmm. like just my personality, but I still think that 
not going for the kill as many times as I should have gone. And this doesn't apply to investing. You know, this applies very stupid stuff. Like if you're in college and you want to talk to a girl, don't overthink it. Just go for it. <laughs> like literally just go for it, man. And what's the worst that can happen, right? Right. It's the same thing with investing as well. Look, you've got to understand yourself. You've got to understand your strategy, but you've got to think big and mm-hmm. you have to go. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times where I've kind of regretted or been in double thought, like six months, one year down the line, I was like, I should have done that then. Right. It was the worst thing that happened. Right, right, right. But hey, there's never a better time than starting right now, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and this is the greatest country in the world to start it in. I mean, the amount of opportunities available even in the US right now, right. I think it's unparalleled. There's a reason why the United States is straight up the greatest country on the planet. It's just, it's, it's just look at it, the amount of, opp- I mean, you're Australian, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm Canadian. You tell me, do you think you even have half the opportunities in Australia? And Australia is a very rich, prosperous, and exciting place to be. Mm-hmm. No, exactly, no, you're right. I, I wouldn't have had the opportunities to go and close on 20, $40 million deals in Australia. You're right, you're right. I've definitely cut my teeth um, on some, some big stuff here, and it's been incredible. Um, but mate, we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about you. Where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to find out a little bit more about what you do. They maybe have some questions about their model because I know a lot of people would have questions after today's show to say, Hey, Omar's really got me thinking about my model. Maybe I should, you know, pay him a few for his time a little bit to have a look at it because I think that would be uh, really beneficial for my business. If I make sure that my systems are in place. So where can people reach you? Well, our website is boardwalkwealth.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes. Yep. They can, my email is umar, O-M-A-R, at boardwalkwealth.com. Fantastic. Well, mate, I want to just thank you so much for dropping by uh, to talk to us today. Some of the things, the big takeaway things that I took away from today's show was, you know, just in terms of the overall vision of what you need to do with your underwriting. You need to set it up in a way that your basic assumptions can be backed by actual credible data. It's not just, as you said, forming something out of a basement. Uh, Looking at operating assumptions, revenue assumptions, um, being consistent with your formatting, coming down to presentation and giving a professional type of presentation. Uh, Also, when you're starting to approach the different types of investors from the mom and pop to the more sophisticated, really, really understanding when you do break out of that mom and pop investors into sophisticated what type of questions they're going to answer and don't be, you know, be really on your game, right? And I think the last thing, I, I love what you said before was it's, a be- it's better to let a few deals go, develop your niche and develop your investing parameters in order to be successful. And I think that was really, really uh, key for today's show. Did, did, did I leave anything out? No, I think you did a great job, Reed. Well, thank you so much, mate. Well, enjoy the rest of your week. We'll catch up soon and have a, have a great one. Thank you, Reed. Well, there you have it. Another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice and actionable steps. If you do have any questions for Omar, please, 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 please hit him up at his email. All the show notes from today's conversation will be up on my website at readgoosens.com. If you do have any questions about your underwriting, please hit him up. He's going to be an absolute wealth of knowledge for you. Thank you guys again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial investing knowledge because that's what we're all about on this show, to continue helping you to continue to grow your IQ, your financial IQ, I should say. We're going to do this all again next week, so take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing. Thank you.